Well, this morning we're going to get back into our series through the Gospel of John. So why don't we turn to, in our Bibles to where we left off from last year, John chapter 15. Now as we head there, I want you to think about what it takes to make a friend. What it takes to make a friend. I think first of all, to make a friend, it often takes having something in common. You've got to have something that you like about each other, or like with each other. The Bible even says, can two walk together except they be agreed? There has to be something that you agree about, something in common. However, if that's all there is, all that friend may turn out to be is just another acquaintance, as we all have, because of something that is in common. It, it, it takes more. You see, to, to make a good friend, it takes something like communication and even conversation, hopefully with with lots of time face-to-face. And, and that's not just using FaceTime, but rather time face-to-face, personally, to make a good friend, to take those acquaintances and make that relationship a little deeper. But, but what does it take to make a best friend? I think it takes something even more. It takes real interest, not just in a matter, but interest in each other and real affection and love for each other. In a word, to have a best friend, it takes heart. It takes a piece of you. It takes love. To make a true friendship, it takes all of these things in a mutual way. To have a true friendship between people, it is a two-way street. That's what it takes to make a friend. But what does it take to make a friend of God? What does it take to make a friend of God and really a friend of Jesus? Because as good as it is to have a friend on earth, just think how much better it is to have a friend in heaven, a friend in God himself. According to James 2.23, the very first patriarch, Abraham, was called the friend of of God. And of course, that quotes God himself, stating that about Abraham in the Old Testament. Isn't that something that you would like to be called a friend of God, even by God himself? It's one thing to say that you're a friend of God. It's another thing entirely for God to say that you're his friend. And that was the case of Abraham. What does it take to make a friend of God? Or according to Exodus 33, 11, we're told that the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Perhaps the very first FaceTime that we find there. Isn't this too something that you would like to experience with God himself? God speaking with you face to face as with a friend? What does it take to make a friend of God? What does it take to make a friend of Christ's? What does it take to be a friend like Abraham and like Moses? When the verses that we come to in John 15, Jesus himself tells us what it takes to make one of his friends. And it takes something a little bit different than any other friend that you might have. Because if you look at verse 14, Jesus says this, Ye are my friends if, what? 
if ye do whatsoever I command you. This is what it takes to make a friend of God, a friend of Christ. Ye are my friends, Jesus says, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Now, if anyone else said that to you, I'm not sure you'd want to be their friend. If you want to be my friend, you have to do everything I tell you to do. Everything. Would you want to be my friend? No matter how much you have in common with someone, no matter how much communication and time you have with each other, no matter how much someone really has your heart, if someone said, you're my friend if you do whatsoever I command you, I don't think you'd want that person to be your friend. Because we're used to friendship that is a two-way street. Friendship that is mutual. Friendship that is between peers. But what it takes to make God's friend is different than what it takes to make another person your friend. Because God is not your peer. God is not just another man that you can build a friendship with. Neither is Jesus, who, though he is a man, is still Lord, and he is still God. And sometimes I think all too often we stress that friendship with the Lord, which is true, but we fail to remember the Lordship of Christ, which is also true. What it takes to make a friend of Jesus is obedience to his words. That's what he clearly teaches. That's what he clearly says. This is what it takes to be his friend. But when you become his friend, and I think Abraham would recognize this, I think Moses would recognize this, I think the disciples that he's telling this to would recognize this, I think Christians of all ages, of all places, when you become Jesus' friend, there is no greater friendship. There is no truer friendship in all the world. Obeying him makes that friendship worth it. But that's why when we come to verse 12, which is we, we, la- we left off in verse 11 last time we were here in this chapter, where Jesus is talking about the joy that we can have in him and the joy that we can have through him, a, a, a full joy, a complete joy. When we come to verse 12, Jesus then offers, first of all, an important reminder of the function and duty of his friends. An important reminder of the function and duty of of his friends. And that's why he repeats and then clarifies what he told us already back in chapter 13, which was also part of this or this upper room discourse in chapter 13 verse 34 when he said, "A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another." So again, what he says here is very similar to what he said there. And in verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. It's a reminder. And then he adds a little bit more. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Of course, we know that there are other commandments that Jesus gives us, that God gives us, that we need to obey. But here, Jesus reminds his friends of the duty of friendship of the duty of friendship. And what is the duty of Christ's friends? What is really the duty of any friendship? It's to love each other, to love one another. 
Now, in other places, Jesus also talks about how we're to love even those who are our enemies, not just our friends. But here, Jesus is talking about love within the family of God, love between Christians, love one another, he says. We have a duty to love each other and to befriend each other as Jesus' disciples. That's clearly what Jesus said in chapter 13. That's clearly what Jesus says here. That's clearly the, the impression we get all throughout the New Testament is that Christians are to be people of love. That's one of the ways that the world will know that we're even his disciples, if we have love for one another. This is our duty of friendship. This is the duty of a friend of God's, to love each other, to befriend each other as Jesus' disciples. And of course, this obviously is a great challenge in and of itself, isn't it? Because sometimes we struggle with love for one another. Not just within this local body of believers, but within the whole body of Christ. Sometimes it's a challenge to truly accept and believe and obey this command that God gives us. But what makes it an even greater challenge is the depth of friendship that Jesus expects. Because Again, this is a reminder from, from chapter 13. We're not only to love one another, but we're to love one another. How? As I have loved you, Jesus says. That's the depth of our duty. That's the depth of the kind of friendship and love that we're to have for each other. Now, if you remember from chapter 13, verse 34, this is what made Jesus' commandment a new commandment. It wasn't so new that we were to love each other. I mean, this is something that we find even in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. We are to love God and love our neighbor, and especially those neighbors that are closest to us. The new part of that commandment is that Jesus expects our love for each other to be like his love. Now that's a challenge. That's the great depth of our duty. Because when you think about the love of Christ you know that his love is an infinite love. And when we talk about infinite love, we're talking in every way possible. It's infinite in time. From everlasting to everlasting, Jesus loves his own. It's infinite in degree, in every possible way, in every possible direction, whether you go up or down or sideways. The breadth, the depth of God's love, of Christ's love is infinite. So how is it possible for you and for me to love as he loves, as he tells us here. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that since Jesus' love is infinite, it means that there's always room for us to grow in our love for each other. That's something that we first need to keep in mind. You do not love each other as Christ loves you. It's impossible for us to do that because we're finite beings. But Jesus does give us a way to help us understand what he means by this and really what kind of love this really entails. And that's why in verse 13, he gives us the demonstration of friendship and really the demonstration of love, which is the greatest form of love possible. What is it? It's when a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, even though this kind of love is still quite rare, We've all heard about examples of this kind of love. It's like when a parent will give up his or her life for their child out of love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Or when a soldier 
gives up his life for a fellow soldier out of, out of that love and friendship and companionship. Again, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, even though a limited and finite person cannot love with an unlimited and infinite love like Christ, you can love someone to the furthest extent possible as a person. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You can give your life for the one you love selflessly. You can give your life for the one you love sacrificially. And though we often think of the greatest extent of that love and the greatest extent of that sacrifice, which is death itself, isn't this the way that we're called to love each other sacrificially and selflessly even before that extreme? We do so in life, even if it costs us our life. This kind of love is the closest we can get to a Christ-like love. And that's why Jesus says there is no greater love. But when Jesus said this, I don't think he was just thinking about what a parent might do for their children or what a soldier might do for another soldier, hypothetically. He was thinking about what he was going to do for those 11 surrounding men who were about him that night. He was about to give his life for his friends. But not just for them. Jesus was thinking about what he was about to do for you and for me and for all who would believe in him and abide in him and be his friends. Jesus was just about to lay down his life for all of us on the cross of Calvary. Not just to spare our lives, but to save our souls. You see, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' selflessness is the greatest example and demonstration of love and friendship that the world will ever know, that the world will ever see. And so from where we stand now, on this side of his cross, his demonstration of the greatest form of love in his death ought to cause us and motivate us to fulfill our function of friendship to each other. Because Jesus gave his life for you, his friend. We ought to love one another as he loved us. Again, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So what is our duty to each other as Christian friends? To love. We need a constant reminder of that, don't we? Because sometimes we're not all that lovely. And certainly, a lot of times, we're not all that lovable. So we need to remember our duty toward each other as Christian friends is to love each other. But what is our duty to Jesus as his friend? Is to obey. Is to obey him. And that is why then, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus secondly tells us about an important reality, an important reality of the function and the duty of his friends. You see, it's one thing to be a friend of other Christians. It's another thing to be a friend of Christ's. And this is that important reality. Verse 14 again. Ye are my friends, he says. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants or slaves. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. 
But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now, even though verse 14 is a conditional statement, I don't believe Jesus was telling his disciples this to motivate them to be his friends. Instead, he is calling them what they already are to him. Ye are my friends, he says. And the evidence of their friendship was their obedience to his commands. It's, it's kind of like when you might call someone to be your friend. You know, I, there are conditions for friendship, right? We already talked about some of those. Something that you have in common, conversation as well, an interest and love for each other. Well, when you call someone your friend, the conditions for that friendship are probably already in place. How many times those of you who are married and those of you who you know, love your spouse, have you, have you been up to, went up to your spouse at some point in your life and you said, you are my best friend? Did you say that the very moment you met that person that would be your spouse? No, because you didn't know anything about him. It took time to get to know them. It took time to deepen that friendship. It took time to learn more about that person, to love that person. And only when those con conditions of friendship were there were you able to say, you are my best friend. And so it is here. This was true for the disciples. They had already obeyed Jesus by heeding his summons and hearing his call and answering and following him to the best of their ability. And so Jesus wants to encourage them. And he says, you are my friends. Abraham was God's friend. Moses was God's friend. You are my friends. And when you strive to do whatsoever the Lord commands you, it is the very evidence that you are his friends. The conditions there, it actually is the character of God's friends. And as his friend, he laid down his life for you. Of course, the first command that Jesus gives to every one of us is what? Believe me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in all of his words that he gives us. Believe in all of his claims that he tells us. Believe in all of his works that he does for us. Because when you believe to the saving of your soul, it means that you have become like Abraham. You become like Moses. You become like these disciples. You become a true friend of God when you believe. When you obey his command. But from there, as a friend of God, You'll want to continue to hear his word. You'll want to continue to heed his word by doing whatsoever he commands you. This is the very evidence of being God's friend. The very evidence of being Christ's friend. Is there this evidence in your life today that you are Jesus' friend? Again, Jesus says, you are my friend if you do whatsoever I command you. If you are not his friend, you can be. But if you are his friend, just think about those words. Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus, the one that we have just recently celebrated his birth, his, his incarnation, his coming into this world in order to save us and rescue us for, from our sin. This Jesus says to you, who at least have taken that first step of obedience by believing in him. He says to you, ye are my friends. Get that. Abraham was God's friend. Moses was God's friend. And you are God's friend. 
I'm sure that this reality and this truth must have shocked them just as much as it ought to shock us. I am Christ's friend. If I do what he commands, if I believe in him and pursue after his word, just like the disciples here did, I am his friend. And so Jesus had to give them and us just a little bit more explanation of that friendship in verse 15, where he adds this. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord, his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now, even though Jesus never called his disciples servants directly, he often did so indirectly. In fact, back in chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. So in an indirect way, in an indirect fashion, Jesus did call his disciples his servants. And so the disciples considered themselves to be Jesus' servants. Now, the word translated servant here is doulos, which is a very common word in that ancient time for a simple household slave. Perhaps it's even better translated that way for us here. Henceforth, I call you not slaves, for the slave knoweth not what his Lord doeth. That is true of all slaves. And so these disciples considered themselves to be Jesus' slaves. Every time they called Jesus their Lord, okay, maybe not every time they called Jesus their Lord, but a lot of times when they called Jesus their Lord, it meant that they were submitting themselves to Jesus as his servants and as his slaves. And then, even after Jesus called them his friends, those who were called to write some of the books that we have in the New Testament, they called themselves servants and slaves of the Lord. So even though they were Jesus' servants, and they were Jesus' slaves, they were not only his servants, and they were not only his slaves. Jesus says, I no longer call you my slave." I call you my friend. So even though you are Jesus' servant and Jesus' slave as well, because you obey him and believe in him and abide in him, you're not only his servant, you're not only his slave, you too are his friend. In ancient Rome, the emperor was the emperor of all. He was the emperor of his family. He was the emperor of the Senate. He was the emperor of all of the citizens in Rome and all of the people that they had conquered. He was the emperor of all. In effect, everyone in the empire was a slave of the emperor in one way, shape, or form. But some of the emperors had slaves that lived in their own household, that lived in their own palace, and those slaves became closer to them than their own family and even than their own wife. Those slaves were their friends. Those slaves became their closest confidant. It didn't change the nature 
of that relationship in that they weren't slaves any longer. They were slaves still. But they were slaves who were now friends. Now what was true then in that ancient Roman setting is now even more true in a universal setting for all who bear the character and evidence of being a Christian. You are no longer just a slave to God, though you still remain a slave to God. You are now a friend of God, and you are one of his closest confidants. Why? Because Jesus has shared with you, through his word, through his spirit, the very mind of God. You see, the difference between a slave and a friend, according to Jesus, is not in what you do. You'd think, well, a slave is supposed to do whatever the Lord says. And now Jesus says his friends are those who do whatever he says. So the difference between a Christian slave and a Christian friend is not what you do. It's what you know. And how you do what you do. Again, what does he say in here in verse 15? Jesus says, I've no longer call you a slave. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Oh, there's a lot of servants. There's a lot of slaves in the household of the Roman emperor that had no idea what the, was in the mind of the emperor. And they just had to do what they're told. But now Jesus says, I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. Jesus did not hide anything that his father wanted him to share with disciples. Not a thing. And so he gave them the mind of God. Now, that doesn't mean that they understood everything that Jesus told them. But what a difference. What, what confidence, what trust, what love, what friendship. This is the reality of all true Christians. What a great privilege it is to be able to say and to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. But even though it is a great privilege... To be God's friend. Sadly, sometimes even Christians can take this reality for granted. Or even think that they had something to do with it. As if all it takes to make a friend with God is the same thing it takes to make a friend with man. And that's why, to keep us ever humble, Jesus then tells us an important reason for this friendship. An important reason for this friendship. Because if you look at verse 16, Jesus goes on and says, Ye have not chosen me. And of course, this is the context of friendship. A friend of God's. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. How is it that you, a sinner, could become a friend of the Savior? How is it that you, a sinner, could become a friend of the Savior? It's not because you chose Jesus to be your friend. It's because Jesus chose you. To be his friend. It's all because Jesus selected you. The word translated chosen here 
is the same word translated elect in other places in the New Testament. And so everything we learn about election in those places applies here as well. Now, even though there is a point in a true Christian's life where they choose to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the biblical fact is you could never have chosen Christ if Christ did not first and foremost choose you and enable you to choose him. And the most remarkable thing is that he chose you to save you when you were but a sinner. And that he chose you to be his friend when you were still one of his greatest foes. That is remarkable. But this great truth that I have chosen you is a comforting truth to all to whom it applies. This great truth that I have chosen you should reassure you that your friendship with God depends more on Christ's choice and commitment to you than on your choice and commitment to him. Praise God that my security of salvation does not rest on my grip of him, but rather his grip on me. But at the same time, this great comforting truth is also a challenging truth. It should motivate you in your friendship with God. That because of his amazing grace, again, that's our entire theme for this year. Because of his amazing grace in choosing you, you now want to live as his friend. And fulfill your function and duty as his friend. And what do Jesus' friends do? They keep his commandments. They listen to what he says and do what he says. Jesus chose and selected you for that purpose. And for his purpose. But even more, from this verse we can also see that Jesus not only selected you, but Jesus then set you apart as well. Jesus says, you have not chosen me. But I have chosen you and ordained you. Now, just like the Old Testament priests who are ordained or another way to put it is set apart or even sanctified to serve God in the tabernacle and in the temple. So Jesus has a special and a specific plan for every one of his friends, for every one of us, even today. What is that plan? Goes on verse 16. That plan is that you that me, that all of us should go and bring forth fruit. And this brings us back to the beginning of this chapter where Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. And what is our point? What's the point of that? It's so that we might bring fruit to God. So Jesus chose you and called you to be his friend so that you might be free to bear his kind of fruit. You need to realize that before Jesus chose you, it was utterly impossible for you to bear any kind of fruit. You were utterly barren and fruitless and useless to God. But now, as his friend, you can go and be fruitful. You can be fruitful in your walk with God. That is, you can bear the fruit of Christ-likeness in your life. Again, if you are one of his friends, isn't this your greatest desire? I want to be more like my friend. I want to be more like my Savior. I want to be more like Jesus. You want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. What is the, the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is beginning with love. You see the connection of the fruit of the Spirit, even with what Jesus is saying here as his new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. But that's not where the fruit ends. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Jesus saved you and chose you to be fruitful in your walk with him, to bear that kind of fruit. But he also chose you and set you apart to be fruitful in your witness for God. Even as you tell others about Christ, your walk and your witness, Jesus did not choose you and ordain you to sit still in your Christian life, but to get up and go and pursue after godly fruit of whatever form that is. Again, what does it say here in verse 16? I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Fruit is not just going to come into your life if you just sit there all the time. But rather go and bear that kind of fruit. And in the last part of this verse, Jesus himself tells us how we are to go and bear this fruit. How we are to pursue after this godly fruit. We are to pursue after fruit in a diligent way. In a way, as it says there in verse 16, that your fruit should remain. You know, a lot of times when we pursue after Christian fruit, I think it's sort of a lackadaisical way. Well, if I bear fruit, okay. If I don't bear fruit, okay. What's it going to matter? I'm going to go to heaven anyways. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you are to pursue after fruit in a diligent way so that your fruit should remain. That is, you do all that you can to have lasting fruit. None of us does anything that's worthwhile in this life to us, in a half-hearted way. If it's something that we really want, if it's something that we really pursue, if it's something that we really desire, we're going to go after it with all of our heart. Whether it's our work, whether it's our church, whether it's our school, whether it's your garden, Jesus is basically saying you need to do all you can to have lasting fruit just like you would tend to a garden or tend to a vine so that whatever you would grow is the best that there is. If I had a garden, which I don't, and I won't, because the way I would tend to it is probably just throw the seeds out there and see what happens. And guess what's going to happen to that garden? Not much, if anything. Just ask the gardeners amongst us. But when you really want to have a garden, and you're really interested in that garden, and you really want to have fruit from that garden, you're going to be diligent as you prepare that garden, as you till that garden, as you water that garden, as you weed that garden, as you do all of those things to that garden. And Jesus says, you're going to do the same thing if you really are my friends. If you're really my friend, you're going to keep my commandments, and part of that is by pursuing after fruit in a diligent way, doing whatever you can so that the growth that you have is the best there is. Since you are now the friend of Jesus, fulfill your function diligently. But then at the same time, he adds, we are to pursue after fruit in a dependent way as well. Because he goes on in verse 16 and he says, So that whatsoever ye shall ask of my Father in my name, he may give it you. Even though we pursue after our fruit diligently, We must never pursue that fruit independent from God and His will and His power and His grace. Because what does Jesus also say? Without God, without Christ, you can do nothing. You're diligent 
while dependent on Him. Always depending on Him and showing that dependence even through prayer. So since you are now the friend of Jesus, fulfill your function with both diligence and dependence. Diligence for the Lord with dependence upon the Lord. After all, this is the reason Jesus made you his friend. I like Matthew Henry, what he wants, how he once put it. He says, those whom Christ ordains should and shall be fruitful. Should labor and shall not labor in vain. In other words, as we give all our diligence, we depend on God giving us the increase. And we pursue it in hope. And so Jesus once again reminds us in verse 17 of the function of his friends. When he says again, these things I command you, that you love one another. But this is not just a repetition of verse 12. He's not just here telling us what to do again. Instead, he's telling us how to do it. He says, these things I command you. He's not just talking about the commandment to love one another. He's talking about all of the other commands that he's given in this chapter and in previous chapters. He says, all of these things I am commanding you in order that so that you can love one another. All of the things that Jesus commands us actually will help us fulfill this basic function that we have as his friends. All of Jesus' commandments as we abide by him, as we fulfill them, as we seek to pursue them, will help us fulfill this loving for one another. And especially that great command that he gives us all the way back in verse 4 of the same chapter when he tells us, when he commands us, abide in me, abide in me. When you strive to abide in Christ, and what does, stri- what does abiding in Christ mean? Well, first of all, it means you have faith in Christ. You seek to have fellowship with Christ. You seek to be faithful to Christ. And as you strive to abide in Him, what is Jesus Himself going to do for you? He will enable you and empower you to love one another even as He loves you. It's such an amazing thing in these verses how it's all connected to Christ. It's all connected to your friendship with Christ. It is in Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus that you are able to fulfill the function of friendship that he chose you and called you to. So what does it take to make a friend of Christ's? This is what it takes. To make a friend of Christ, to make a friend of God. And now what do we do? We live as his friends. And who are his friends? John 15, 14. Ye are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. No longer as slaves, but as friends. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you will help us to see from these verses what it takes to make a friend of God's. Oh Lord, we want to have friendship in this world. But Lord, truly, those friendships are nothing like the friendship that we can have with you. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us to see from these verses what it takes to be your friend. And that, Lord, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a Savior, and we started that 
walk of obedience. That is what it takes to make us a friend of Christ's. But then, Lord, help us to realize what a privilege it is for us to have that friendship, to to pursue that friendship, to enjoy that friendship, and to live out that friendship. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us even today to remember what it takes to be Jesus' friend, to understand the very reason why Jesus chose us and called us and ordained us to be his friend. So that, Father, we might live according to the reality of that friendship. A friendship like no other in this world. Thank you, Lord, that we can be called your friends. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.